Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some more familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight we continue our story, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, The Man with the Twisted Lip, by Arthur Conan Doyle. What a cripple, said I. What could he have done single-handed against a man in the prime of life? He is a cripple in the sense that he walks with a limp. But in other respects, he appears to be a powerful and well-nurtured man. Surely a medical experience will tell you, Watson, that weakness in one limb is often compensated for by exceptional strength in the others. Pray continue your narrative. Mrs. St. Clair had fainted at the sight of the blood upon the window, and she was escorted home in a cab by the police, as her presence could be of no help to them in their investigations. Inspector Barton, who had charge of the case, made a very careful examination of the premises, but without finding anything which threw any light upon the matter. But without finding anything which threw any light upon the matter. One mistake had been made in not arresting Boone instantly, as he was allowed some few minutes during which he might have communicated with his friend in the scar. But this fault was soon remedied, and he was seized and searched, without anything being found which could incriminate him. There were, it is true, some blood stains upon his right shirt sleeve, but he pointed to his ring finger, which had been cut near the nail, and explained that the bleeding came from there, adding that he had been to the window not long before, and that the stains which had been observed there came doubtless from the same source. He denied strenuously having ever seen Mr. Neville St. Clair, and swore that the presence of the clothes in his room was as much a mystery to him as to the police. As to Mrs. St. Clair's assertion that she had actually seen her husband at the window, he declared that she had must have been even mad or dreaming. He was removed, loudly protesting, to the police station, while the inspector remained upon the premises in the hope that the ebbing tide might afford some fresh clue. And it did, though they hardly found upon the mud bank what they feared to find. It was Neville St. Clair's coat, and not Neville St. Clair, which lay uncovered as the tide receded. And what do you think they found in the pockets? I cannot imagine. No, I don't think you would guess. Every pocket stuffed with pennies and half pennies. 421 pennies and 270 half pennies. It was no wonder that it had not been swept away by the tide. But a human body is a different matter. There is a fierce eddy between the wharf and the house. It seemed likely enough that the weighted coat had remained when the stripped body had been sucked away into the river. But I understand that all the other clothes were found in the room. Would the body be dressed in a coat alone? No, sir. But the facts might be met speciously enough. Suppose that this man Boone had thrust Neville St. Clair through the window. There is no human eye which could have seen the deed. What would he do then? It would of course instantly strike him that he must get rid of the telltale garments. He would seize his coat then, and be in the act of throwing it out, when it would occur to him that it would swim and not sink. He has little time, for he has heard the scuffle downstairs, when the wife tried to force her way up, and perhaps he has already heard from his Lascar confederate that the police are hurrying up the street. There is not an instant to be lost. He rushes to some secret board, where he has accumulated the fruits of his beggary, and he stuffs all the coins upon which he can lay his hands into the pockets to make sure of its coat sinking. He throws it out, and would have done the same for the other garments had not he heard the rush of steps below, and only just had time to close the window when the police appeared. It certainly sounds feasible. Well, we will take it as a working hypothesis for want of a matter. Boone, as I told you, was arrested and taken to the station, but it could not be shown that there had ever before been anything against him. He had for years been known as a professional beggar, but his life appeared to have been a very quiet and innocent one. There the matter stands at present. And the questions which have to be solved, what Neville St. Clair was doing in the opium den, what happened to him when there, where is he now, and what Hugh Boone had to do with his disappearance, are all as far from a solution as ever. I confess that I cannot recall any case within my experience which looked at the first glance so simple, and yet which presented such difficulties. While Sherlock Holmes had been detailing this singular series of events, we had been whirling to the outskirts of the great town until the last struggling houses had been left behind, and we rattled along with a country hedge upon either side of us. Just as he finished, however, we drove through two scattered villages, where a few lights still glimmered in the windows. We are on the outskirts of Lee, said my companion. We have touched on three English countries in our short drive, starting in Middlesex, passing over in England, Surrey, and ending in Kent. See that light among the trees? That is to see us. And beside that lamp sits a woman whose anxious ears have already, I have little doubt, caught the clink of a horse's feet. But why are you not conducting the case from Baker Street, I asked. Because there are many inquiries which must be made out here. Mrs. St. Clair has most kindly put two rooms at my disposal, and you may rest assured that you will have nothing but welcome for my friend and colleague. I hate to meet her, Watson, when I have no news of her husband. Here we are. Well, there, well. We had pulled up in front of a large villa, which stood within its own grounds. A stable boy had run out to the horse's head, and springing down, I followed Holmes up the small, winding gravel drive which led to the house. As we approached, the door flew open, and a little blonde woman stood in the opening, clad in some sort of light mousseline dissoir, with a touch of fluffy pink chiffon at her neck and wrists. She stood with her figure outlined against the flood of light, one hand upon the door, one half raised in her eagerness, her body slightly bent, her head and face protruded, with eager eyes and parted lips, a standing question. Well? she cried. Well? And then, seeing that there were two of us, she gave a cry of hope, which sank into a groan as she saw that my companion shook his head and shrugged his shoulders. No good news. None. No bad. No. Thank God for that. But come in. You must be weary, for you have had a long day. This is my friend, Dr. Watson. He has been of most vital use to me in several of my cases. And a lucky chance has made it possible for me to bring him out and associate him with this investigation. I am delighted to see you, said she, pressing my hand warmly. You will, I am 
sure, forgive anything that may be wanting in our arrangements when you consider the blow that has come so suddenly upon us. My dear madam, said I, I am an old campaigner, and if I were not, I can very well see that no apology is needed. If I can be of any assistance, either to you or to my friend here, I shall indeed be happy. No, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said the lady as we entered a well-lit dining room, upon the table of which a cold supper had been laid out, I should very much like to ask you one or two plain questions to which I beg that you will give a plain answer. Certainly, madam. Do not trouble about my feelings. I am not hysterical, nor even defending. I simply wish to hear your real, real opinion. Upon what point? In your heart of hearts, do you think that Neville is alive? Sherlock Holmes seemed to be embarrassed by the question. Frankly now, she repeated, standing upon the rug and looking keenly down at him as he leaned back in a basket chair. Frankly then, madam, I do not. You think that he is dead? I do. Murdered? I don't say that. Perhaps. And on what day did he meet his death? On Monday. Then perhaps, Mr. Holmes, you will be good enough to explain how it is that I received a letter from him today. Sherlock Holmes sprang out of his chair as if he had been galvanized. What? He roared. Yes, today. She stood smiling, holding up a little slip of paper in the air. May I see it? Certainly. He snatched it from her in his eagerness, and smoothing it out upon the table, he drew over the lamp and examined it intently. I had left my chair and was gazing at it over his shoulder. The envelope was a very coarse one and was stamped with the Gravesend postmark, and with the date of that very day, or rather on the day before, for it was considerably after midnight. Coarse writing, murmured Holmes. Surely this is not your husband's writing, man. No, but the enclosure is. I perceive also that whoever addressed the envelope had to go inquire as to the address. How can you tell that? The name you see is in perfectly black ink which has dried itself. The rest is of a grayish color. Which the blotting paper has been used. If it had been written straight off, then blotted, none would be of a deep black shade. This man has written the name, and there has been a pause before he wrote the address, which can only mean that he was not familiar with it. It is, of course, a trifle, but there is nothing so important as trifles. Let us now see the letter. Ha! There has been an enclosure here. Yes, there was a ring, his signet ring. Are you are sure that this is your husband's hand? One of his hands. One? His hand when he wrote hurriedly it is very unlike his usual writing, and yet I know it well. Dearest, do not be frightened. All will come well. There is a huge error, which it may take some little time to rectify. Wait in patience, never. Written in pencil upon the flyleaf of a book, octavo size, no watermark. Hmm. Posted today in Gravesend by a man with a dirty thumb. Ha! And the flap has been gummed, if I'm not very much in error, by a person who had been chewing tobacco. And you have no doubt that it is your husband's hand, madam. None. Neville wrote those words. And they were posted today at Gravesend. Well, Mrs. St. Clair, the crowd's frightened. Though I should not venture to say that the danger is over. But he must be alive, Mr. Holmes. Unless this is the clever forgery to put us on the wrong scent. The ring, after all, proves nothing. It may have been taken from him. No, no. It is. It is his very own writing. Very well. It may, however, have been written on Monday and only posted today. That is possible. If so, much may have happened between. Oh, you must not discourage me, Mr. Holmes. I know that all is well with him. There is so keen a sympathy between us that I should know if evil came upon him. On the very day that I saw him last, he cut himself in the bedroom. And yet I in the dining room rushed upstairs instantly with the utmost certainty that something had happened. Do you think that I would respond to such a trifle and yet be ignorant of his death? I have seen too much not to know that the impression of a woman may be more valuable than the conclusion of an analytical reasoner. And in this letter you certainly have a very strong piece of evidence to corroborate your view. But if your husband is alive and able to write letters, why should he remain away from you? I cannot imagine. It is unthinkable. And on Monday, he made no remarks before leaving you. No. And you were surprised to see him in Swandham Lane. Very much so. Was the window open? Yes. Then he might have called to you? He might. He only, as I understand, gave an inarticulate cry. Yes. A call for help, you thought. Yes, he waved his hands. But it might have been a cry of surprise. Astonishment at the unexpected sight of you might cause him to throw up his hands. It is possible. And you thought he was pulled back. He disappeared so suddenly. He might have laid back. You did not see anyone else in the room. No, but this horrible man confessed to having been there. And the Lestrade was at the foot of the stairs. Quite so. Your husband, as far as you could see, had his ordinary clothes on. But without his collar or tie, I distinctly saw his bare throat. Had he ever spoken of Swandham Lane? Never. Had he ever showed any signs of having taken opium? Never. Thank you, Mrs. St. Clair. Those are the principal points about which I wish to be absolutely clear. We shall now have a little supper and then retire, for we may have a very busy day tomorrow. A large and comfortable double-bedded room had been placed at our disposal, and I was quickly between the sheets, for I was weary after my night of adventure. Sherlock Holmes was a man, however, who, when he had an unsolved problem upon his mind, would go for days and even a week without rest, turning it over, rearranging his facts, looking at it from every point of view until he had either fathomed it or convinced himself that his data was insufficient. It was soon evident to me that he was now preparing for an all-night sitting. 
He took off his coat and waistcoat, put on a large blue dressing gown, and then wandered about the room, collecting pillows from his bed and cushions from the sofa and armchairs. With these, he constructed a sort of eastern divan, upon which he perched himself, cross-legged, with an ounce of chag tobacco and a box of matches laid out in front of him. In the dim light of the lamp, I saw him sitting there, an old briar pipe between his lips, his eyes fixed vacantly upon the corner of the ceiling, blue smoke curling up from him, silent, motionless, with a light shining upon his strong set aquiline features. So he sat as I dropped off to sleep, and so he sat when a sudden ejaculation caused me to wake up, and I found the summer sun shining into the apartment. The pipe was still between his lips, the smoke still curled upward, and the room was full of a dense tobacco haze, but nothing remained of the heap of shag which I had seen upon the previous night. Awake, Watson, he asked. Yes. Game for a morning drive? Certainly. Then dress. No one is staring yet, but I know where the stable boy sleeps, and we shall soon have the trap out. He chuckled to himself as he spoke. His eyes twinkled, and he seemed a different man to the somber thinker of the previous night. As I dressed, I glanced at my watch. It was no wonder that no one was stirring. It was 25 minutes past four. I had hardly finished when Holmes returned with the news that the boy was putting in the horse. I want to test a little theory of mine, said he, putting on his boots. I think, Watson, that you are now standing in the presence of one of the most absolute fools of Europe. I deserve to be kicked from here to Charing Cross, but I think I have the key of the affair now. And where is it? I asked, smiling. In the bathroom, he answered. Oh, yes, I am not joking. He continued, seeing my look of incredulity. I've just been there, and I've taken it out, and I've got it in this Gladstone bag. Come on, my boy, and we shall see whether it will not fit the lock. We made our way downstairs as quietly as possible and out into the bright morning sunshine. In the road stood our horse and trap with a half-clad stable boy waiting at the head. We both sprang in and away we dashed down the London road. A few country carts were stirring, bearing in vegetables to the metropolis, but the lines of villas on either side were as silent as lifeless as some city in a dream. It has been in some points a singular case, said Holmes, flicking the horse on into a gallop. I confess that I have been as blind as a mole, but it is better to learn wisdom late than never to learn it at all. In town, the earliest risers were just beginning to look sleepily from their windows. As we drove through the streets of the Surrey side, passing down the Waterloo Bridge Road, we crossed over the river, and dashing up Wellington Street, wheeled sharply to the right, and found ourselves in Bull Street. Sherlock Holmes was well known to the force, and the two constables at the door saluted him. One of them held the horse's head while the other let us in. Who's on duty? asked Holmes. Inspector Bradstreet, sir. Ah, Bradstreet, how are you? A tall, stout official had come down from the stone flagged passage in a peaked cap and frogged jacket. I wish to have a quiet word with you, Bradstreet. Certainly, Mr. Holmes. Step into my room here. It was a small, office-like room with a huge ledger upon the table and a telephone projecting from the wall. The inspector sat down at his desk. What can I do for you, Mr. Holmes? I called about that beggarman, Boone, the one who was charged with being concerned in the disappearance of Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee. Yes, he was brought up and remanded for further inquiries. So I heard. You have him here? In the cells? Is he quiet? Oh, he gives no trouble, but he is a dirty scoundrel. Dirty? Yes, it is all we can do to make him wash his hands, and his face is as black as a tinker's. Well, when once his case has been settled, he will have a regular prison bath, and I think if you saw him, you would agree with me that he needed it. I would like to see him very much. Would you? That is easily done. Come this way, you can No, I think that I'll take it. Very good. Come this way, if you please. He led us down the passage, opened a barred door, passed down a winding stair, and brought us to a whitewashed corridor with a line of doors on each side. The third on the right is his, said the inspector. Here it is. He quietly shot back a panel in the upper part of the door and glanced through. He is asleep, said he. You can see him very well. We both put our eyes to the grating. The prisoner lay with his face towards us, in a very deep sleep, breathing slowly and heavily. He was a middle-sized man, coarsely clad, as became his calling, with a coloured shirt protruding through the rent in his tattered coat. He was, as the inspector had said, extremely dirty, but the grime which covered his face could not conceal its repulsive ugliness. A broad wheel from an old scar ran right across it from eye to chin, and by its contraction it turned up one side of the upper lip, so that three teeth were exposed in a perpetual snarl. A shock of very bright red hair grew low over his eyes and forehead. He's a beauty, isn't he? said the inspector. He certainly needs a wash, remarked Holmes. I had an idea that he might, and I took the liberty of bringing the tools with me. He opened the gladstone bag as he spoke, and took out, to my astonishment, a very large bath sponge. <laughs> You're a funny one, chuckled the inspector. Now, if you will have the great goodness to open that door very quietly. We will soon make him cut a much more respectable figure. I don't know why not, said the inspector. He doesn't look a credit to the Bow Street cells, does he? He slipped his key into the lock, and we all very quietly entered the cell. The sweeper half turned and then settled down once more into a deep slumber. Holmes stooped to the water jug, moistened his sponge, and then rubbed it twice vigorously across and down the prisoner's face. Let me introduce you, he shouted, to Mr. Neville St. Clair of Lee in the county of Kent. Never in my life have I seen such a sight. The man's face peeled off under the sponge like a bark from a tree. Gone was a coarse brown tint. Gone too was the horrid scar which had seen it across, and the twisted lip which had given the repulsive smear to the face, but which brought away the tangled red hair. And there, sitting up his bed, was a pale, sad-faced, refined-looking man, black-haired and smooth-skinned, rubbing his eyes and staring about him with sleepy bewilderment. Then, suddenly realizing the exposure, he broke into a scream and threw himself down with his face to the pillow. Great heavens, cried the inspector. It is indeed the missing man. I know him from the photograph. 
Christmas returned with a reckless air of a man who abandons himself to his destiny. Be it so, said he, and pray what am I charged with? With making away with Mr. Neville Saint? Oh, come, you can't be charged with that, unless they make a case of attempted suicide of it, said the inspector with a grin. Well, I have been 27 years in a force, but this really takes the cake. If I am Mr. Neville Saint Clair, then it is obvious that no crime has been committed, and that, therefore, I am illegally detained. No crime, but a very great error has been committed, said Holmes. You would have done better to have trusted your wife. It was not the wife, it was the children, groaned the prisoner. God help me, I would not have them ashamed of their father. My God, what an exposure! What can I do? Sherlock Holmes sat down beside him on the couch and patted him kindly on the shoulder. If you leave it to a court of law to clear the matter up, said he, of course you can hardly avoid publicity. On the other hand, if you convince the police authorities that there is no possible case against you, I do not know that there is any reason that the details should find their way into the papers. Inspector Bradstreet would, I am sure, make notes upon anything which you might tell us and submit it to the proper authorities. The case would then never go into court at all. God bless you, cried the prisoner passionately. I would have endured imprisonment, ah, even execution, rather than have left my miserable secret as a family block to my children. You were the first to have ever heard my story. My father was a schoolmaster in Chesterfield, where I received an excellent education. I traveled in my youth, took to the stage, and finally became a reporter on the evening paper in London. One day, my editor wished to have a series of articles upon begging in the metropolis, and I volunteered to supply them. That was the point from which all my adventures started. It was only by trying begging as an amateur that I could get the facts upon which to base my articles. When an actor I had, of course, learned all the secrets of making up, and had been famous in the green room for my skill, I took advantage now of my attainments. I painted my face, and to make myself as pitiable as possible, I made a good scar, and fixed one side of my lip in a twist by the aid of a small strip of flesh-colored plaster. Then, with a red head of hair and an appropriate dress, I took my station in the business part of the city, ostensibly as a match seller, but really as a beggar. For seven hours I applied my trade, and when I returned home in the evening, I found to my surprise that I had received no less than 26 shillings. Four days. I wrote my articles and thought a little more of the matter until, sometime later, I backed a bill for a friend and had a writ served upon me for £25. I was at my wit's end ready to get the money, but a sudden idea came to me. I begged a fortnight's grace from the creditor, asked for a holiday from my employers, and spent the time in begging in the city under my disguise. In ten days I had the money, and it paid the debt. Well, you can imagine how hard it was to settle down to arduous work at two pounds a week, but I knew that I could earn as much in a day as by smearing my face with a little paint, laying my cap on the ground, and sitting still. It was a long fight between my pride and the money, but the dollars won at last, and I threw up reporting and sat day after day in the corner which I had first chosen, inspiring pity by my ghastly face and filling my pockets with coppers. Only one man knew my secret. He was the keeper of a low den in which I used to lodge in Swandon Lane, where I could every morning emerge as a squalid beggar and in the evenings transform myself into a well-dressed man about town. This fellow, a Lascar, was well paid by me for his rooms, so that I knew that my secret was safe in his possession. Well, very soon, I found that I was saving considerable sums of money. I do not mean that any beggar in the streets of London could earn 700 pounds a year, which is less than my average takings, but I had exceptional advantages in my power of making up, and also in the facility of repartee, which improved my practice and made me quite a recognized character in the city. All day, a stream of pennies, varied by silver, poured in upon me, and it was a very bad day in which I failed to take two pounds. As I grew richer, I grew more ambitious, took a house in the country, and eventually married, without anyone having a suspicion as to my real occupation. My dear wife knew that I had business in the city. She little knew what. Last Monday, I had finished for the day and was dressing in my room above the opium den when I looked out of my window and saw, to my horror and astonishment, that my wife was standing in the street with her eyes fixed full upon me. I gave a cry of surprise, threw up my arms to cover my face, and rushing to my confidant, the Lascar, entreated him to prevent anyone from coming up to me. I heard her voice downstairs, but I knew that she could not ascend. Swiftly, I threw off my clothes, pulled on those of a beggar, and put on my pigments and wig. Even a wife's eyes could not pierce so complete a disguise. But then it occurred to me that there might be a search in the room, and the clothes might betray me. I threw open the window, reopening by my violence a small cut which I had inflicted upon myself in the bedroom that morning. Then I seized my coat, which was weighted by the coppers which I had just transferred to it from the leather bag in which I carried my takings. I hurled it out of the window and it disappeared into the Thames. The other clothes would have followed, but at that moment there was a rush of constables up the stair, and after a few minutes after I found, rather, I confessed to my relief, that instead of being identified as Mr. Neville St. Clair, I was arrested as his murderer. I do not know that there is anything else for me to explain. I was determined to preserve my disguise as long as possible, and hence my preference for a dirty face. Knowing that my wife would be terribly anxious, I slipped off my ring and confided it to the Lascar at a moment when no constable was watching me, together with a hard scowl telling her that she had no cause to fear. That note only reached her yesterday, said Holmes. Good God, what a week she must have spent. The police have watched this for said Inspector Bradstreet, and I can quite understand that he might find it difficult to post a letter unobserved. Probably he handed it to some sailor customer of his who forgot all about it for some days. That was it, said Holmes, nodding approvingly. I have no doubt of it. But have you never been prosecuted for paying? Many times, but what was the fine to me? It must stop here, however, said Bradstreet. If the police are to hush this thing out, there must be no more of you, Boone. I have sworn it by the most solemn oaths which a man can take. In that case, I think that it is probable that no further steps may be taken. But if you are found again, then all must come out. I am sure, Mr. Holmes, that we are very much indebted to you for having cleared the matter up. I wish I knew how you reach your results. I reached this one, said friend, by sitting upon five pillows and consuming an ounce of shat. 
Hi, Dave Watson. If we drive to Baker Street, we shall just be in time for breakfast. You ever hear those stories of people wanting to live a double life? People trying to do things, maybe online, maybe secretively, or out of the guise of their kids or their family? It's an older idea than you think. Another story ripped from the headlines of The Great Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. I want to remind you that we're always looking for great public domain stories to read. You can email them to me, bigvoicejay at gmail.com. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps spread the word that we're out here putting people to sleep. Thank you so much for listening. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program.